Hello there, MMBC Church family. This is uh, Pastor Spencer Snow, the discipleship pastor here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, and uh, I hope you're doing well uh, this week. Uh, this week is uh, week three, week three in our New Testament reading through the New Testament Bible reading plan, and this is uh, the fourth episode, but the third week uh, where we are reading through the New Testament in one year. So uh, if you've been following with us, and I hope you have, uh, reading one chapter for five days uh, every week, so five chapters per week, you can cover the whole New Testament in one year. And this week, in week three, beginning January 16th, we are looking at Matthew chapters 11 through chapter 15. And so as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've already covered... um, the birth of Christ. We've seen him enter the world. We've seen his baptism. We've seen him call his first disciples to himself. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, uh, miracles happen, on and on. And now, uh, as we get into more of the middle part of Matthew's gospel, teaching us about who Jesus Christ is, what he came to do, and why he did it, um, we're going to start now to see uh, Jesus further teach his disciples, but also press them to understand who he is, what he has come to do, why he is here. Uh, Jesus eventually is going to drive to Matthew chapter 16, where we are going to see the confession of Peter uh, of when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And really, uh, the gospel is building up to that moment before then eventually it leads us uh, next to the cross, of course. So Matthew chapter 11 through 15, if you if you read these chapters or if you're going to be reading them this week, you'll notice that a quick overview, a quick summary of what these chapters are about. Um, it opens up in chapter 11. Jesus just spoke and taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, then In Matthew chapter 11, we read about some of uh, John the Baptist. He's in prison. He sends his uh, disciples to Jesus with the question, uh, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus proves that he is the one who's to come. He uh, highlights the importance of John the Baptist and how both John and he both had been calling the uh, present Israelite generation back to faith and, and called back to God in repentance and faith. Jesus pronounces judgment before then he also pronounces an invitation and calls all those who wish to come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew chapter 12, then, that leads us into the fact that Jesus is starting to have more conflict with the religious leaders and with uh, the the Pharisees and people like that, especially whenever he begins uh, to violate the Sabbath. Uh, at least the way they think he is violating the Sabbath. We believe Jesus was never actually violating the Sabbath. He was violating their man-made rules about the Sabbath, but never God's true intention. And Jesus, though, highlights the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He rules over it, and uh, they have misapplied the law. And he's he's uh, highlighting and, and putting himself on a very high high pedestal. And this eventually is going to lead uh, the Pharisees to now go out and and want to destroy Jesus. And this is where we really start to see that opposition to Jesus start to really uh, begin to ratchet up. 
they're going to begin now to oppose Jesus. And we see that eventually where they um, they come to Jesus and they say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by Satan himself. And Jesus re- refutes that and and uh, also t- warns them of their unbelief. Uh, they, they really come up to him and they, uh, they uh, pretend to ask for a sign. And Jesus tells them no sign is going to be given to them but the sign of Jonah. And then eventually that will lead us into chapter 13 where we see Jesus now is going to begin to speak in parables to the crowd around him. He speaks in parables. Many of these parables are parables that we know about, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven and the pearl of great price, the hidden treasure. All those parables are going to be here where Jesus is describing to his disciples what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom, what his, what Jesus has come to bring about and bring and usher in. He's the king this is the kingdom. This is what uh, he has come to bring about through his life, his ministry, and this is what he's come to do. And he describes and explains these parables to his disciples and, and, and gives his disciples insight and explanation into what they mean in a way that he doesn't do to the crowds. Eventually, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth before we go into chapter 14, where we read about the death and execution of John the Baptist. Uh, We see how that happened. We also see a a miracle that is emphasized in all the Gospels. I believe all all four Gospels emphasize the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus comes and feeds 5,000 men, uh, breaks these, these small number of fish and loaves, and feeds a multitude. And uh, we see this emphasized in all the Gospels as a great uh, miracle that really highlights to us the purpose and the reason why Jesus came. He's the bread of life. And right after that, though, Jesus walks on the water. He goes to pray. He sends his disciples out. They get in a storm. Jesus walks on the water uh, to them in the storm. Peter walks to him, and you know the story. Peter uh, sees the waves and everything and starts to disbelieve and sinks, and Jesus saves him uh, from the from the sinking uh, waves. And then eventually in chapter 15, we see Jesus again come into full-on conflict with the religious leaders. Um, they, they, see, they tell him, and they ask him, they say, why are you breaking the tradition of the elders? Because Jesus, again, is, is not following their man-made traditions. Again, it's important to note, Jesus is not violating what God said to do. And not said to do. He's violating their man-made rules on top of what Jesus had said and said not to do. So Jesus here highlights the fact that we had better obey God rather than man. And it's, it's scripture has a higher place than the traditions of men. He teaches them what really is what what violates man is is not what he puts into the body. It's not all a bunch of ceremonies and external things. What defiles man is actually already what's on the inside, our hearts, our hearts which are evil. And and he highlights this this amazing principle of where sin comes from, this truth. The source of sin is not outside of us, it's in each of us. And this is next pointed out. Uh, you can see the, the fact that uh, externals don't matter. 
uh, truly uh, compared in, in comparison to the internal reality of the fountain from sin is that we see a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, not an Israelite. She's regarded as externally unclean. She's a Gentile. She's an outsider. And this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and shows great faith in understanding who Jesus is. This illustrates to us that it, it, it it's really what we think about Jesus. It's faith that makes us clean or unclean. It's not whether or not who our parents were or even, even the good things we do externally. It's whether or not we look to Christ for healing and salvation and for everything. Jesus will heal people before eventually feeding 4,000 disciples or feeding 4,000 um, men besides women and children, we're told. Um, and they're doing another miracle. And that leads us on the, then into chapter 16, which we will get to next week um, in the podcast. So that's kind of a quick overview, quick bird's eye view of what's happening here in these five chapters this week, Matthew 11 through 15. Now, what can we learn from these these five chapters? Well, this week I want to do something uh, different from what I've done previously. I want to try to take something from each individual chapter, and maybe you can think about these each day as you are reading through the New Testament. I've got something from J.C. Ryle, but also something from Charles Spurgeon, just to kind of help us meditate and um, to hopefully uh, give you food for thought as you're reading the New Testament, as you're reading these chapters, so that not only are you able to read the Bible, but hopefully these, these thoughts will, will help spark further thinking in your minds about uh, how these passages apply to you, how to um, kind of just meditate upon them, let them sink in, soak in the scriptures, so to speak. And that's what I hope um, this time is also helpful for. What can we learn from these passages? Again, I'm going to be quoting much from J.C. Ryle. He was a a pastor in the 1800s in England. He wrote a set of books called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. They're very helpful, very uh, easy to read, and have some really great practical points about what we can learn as we read through the gospel, uh, the four gospels, and he's got them on all four gospels. Um, they're just really helpful, uh, really practical, and, and he's really easy to understand, and really, he's really plain, and I really like that, So, um, and really gospel-centered uh, as well. So as we go through, what can we learn? Well, first of all, J.C. Ryle points out that um, from Matthew chapter 11, especially as we're looking here about Jesus at the very end of that chapter where Jesus says, um, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, J.C. Ryle here points out to us the greatness and majesty of our Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes this, The language of our Lord on this subject is deep and wonderful. He says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Neither does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son desires to reveal him. We may truly say as we read these words, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. We see something of the perfect union which exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity. We see something of the immeasurable superiority of the Lord Jesus to all who are nothing, who are, uh, nothing more than men. But still, when we have said all this, we must confess that there are heights and depths in this verse 
which are beyond our feeble comprehension. We can only admire them in the spirit of little children, but the half of them we must feel remains untold. So I think that's very important for us to remember because Jesus says that he's that the Father has uh, hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but revealed them to little children. And, and as we think about who Jesus is and what he is to us, we have to come and believe the gospel, not as people who are, think we're so wise and are, are so smart or have it all together in our own eyes. If that's who we are, we will never believe in Jesus. Because if we think we have it all together, if we think we're so smart um, or we've got life figured out and we'll just add Jesus onto that, or Jesus can be my life coach, or Jesus can come alongside and join me in whatever I'm already doing, we won't really believe in Jesus. It takes humility to believe upon Jesus as a little child. Isn't that interesting? That's the illustration Jesus uses for saving faith, as we'll see later on in Matthew's gospel, is little children to receive the kingdom in such uh, dependence, in such humility, just to receive it. We, have, we bring nothing to the table. We simply receive it and to believe these things um, with, with confidence in our Lord. Uh, he, he mentions this uh, as well about Jesus. He says, He bears the keys. To him we must go for admission into heaven. He is the door. Through him we must enter. He is the shepherd. We must hear his voice and follow him if we would not perish in the wilderness. He is the physician. We must apply to him if we would be healed of the plague of sin. He is the bread of life. We must feed on him if we would have our souls satisfied. He is the light. We must walk after him if we would not wander in darkness. He is the fountain. We must wash in his blood if we would be cleansed and made ready for the great day of account. Blessed and glorious are these truths. If we have Christ, we have all things. 1 Corinthians 3.22 Great reminders to us about how all things, as J.C. Ryle's pointing out there, all things are delivered unto him. He He has the keys, he is the door, he is the shepherd, he is the physician, he is the bread of life, he is the light, he is the fountain. He is everything to us. And so we see in these verses here right away again, the majesty, the glory, the beauty. Uh, There is no other figure in the world like Jesus of Nazareth. Second of all, then, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Ryle points out how we see the exceeding sinfulness of sins against knowledge. We see this whenever Jesus here is telling his disciples that any sin they commit, any blasphemy that they speak against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And he's speaking to these people who are opposing him, these religious leaders who are saying that Jesus is casting out demons, not by the Holy Spirit, not by the Holy Spirit of God, but by Satan himself. And Jesus here is warning them and warning us uh, about the exceeding sinfulness, as J.C. Ryle talks about it, of sinning against knowledge, of sins against knowledge. Let's see what he means by this. He says, This is a practical conclusion which appears to flow naturally from our Lord's words about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Difficult as these words undoubtedly are, they seem fairly to prove that there are degrees in sin. Offenses arising from ignorance of the true mission of the Son of Man will not be punished so heavily as offenses committed against the noontide light of the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. 
The brighter the light, the greater the guilt of him who rejects it. The clearer a man's knowledge of the nature of the gospel, the greater his sin if he willfully refuses to repent and believe. The doctrine here taught is one that does not stand alone in Scripture. Paul says to the Hebrews, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment. Hebrews 6, 4 through 7, and Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. It is a doctrine of which we find mournful proofs in every quarter. The unconverted children of godly parents, the unconverted servants of godly families, and the unconverted members of evangelical congregations are the hardest people on earth to impress. They seem past feeling. The same fire which melts the wax hardens the clay. And so it's a really important reminder that these men who were so close to Jesus, these religious leaders, right? Sometimes we think, if I could have only seen Jesus, I would have believed. Well, look at these men. They saw miracles. They saw demons being cast out. And yet, what did they say? Jesus is just doing this by Satan. This isn't the work of the Holy Spirit in in and through Jesus. This is the work of the evil one. It's important for us to remember that we, as we come to church, as we've been trained in godly families, as we read our Bibles as families at homes or individuals, or we come to Sunday school or youth group, or we have Bible studies, or we have home groups, or we have church services, it's important for us to remember that we are going to be held accountable for the knowledge that we have received, for the gospel light that we have been given. If you have come to church for years, you will be held more responsible for the knowledge that you have than someone in some far-off country who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if any of us, whoever dies in unbelief, and if they die in rejecting Christ in unbelief, they will face the eternal punishment of God for their sins. But for those who have set under gospel preaching, have maybe heard the Bible read, have read the Bible themselves, have understood basic Christian truth, or maybe lots of Christian truth, you and I are going to be responsible for how we have used that knowledge. Have we believed it or not? Or have we rejected it over and over and over and over again? So we need to be careful how we uh, utilize our, our time and how we respond to the Word of God. I think I've said it before, but every time we come into church, every time we come into the doors of the church and we come to worship our God and, and our pastor or whoever it is brings us the Scriptures, opens the text of Scripture and preaches the Bible to us, every time we enter those doors, we enter closer to heaven or closer to hell. And that's, that's just, there's no neutral ground here. And so we need to be reminded that we need to flee the wrath to come and come to Christ so that we do not neglect the day of salvation and so that we will not be, uh, I've heard it said before, and this is a very sober reality, but to, to go to hell loaded down with sermons because we've heard the gospel so many times, but we've rejected it over and over again. And so I urge all of us, you and me, to, to repent again and to, to, to trust in Christ. And if you've never trusted in Christ before, to trust in him uh, this day and to look to Christ for salvation alone. Because uh, to reject Christ over and over and over again, you may run the risk 
apart from God's grace, of hardening yourself. We, we see that's a reality in Scripture, and that's what happened to these men that Jesus was confronted with here, and, uh, and it is a possibility um, in it as well. Um, there, is, there is such a thing as the uh, sin and the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. So, number three thing that we learn in these passages is found in chapter 13, and that is based off of uh, Jesus's parable there, of the parable of the sower, where we're told really the parable of the sower is, the, is a parable about different types of people who hear the gospel of Christ. We see Jesus uh, uses the analogy of, a, of a, a sower who goes out to sow and he throws the seeds and he throws the seed on gospel ground. The same seed comes from the same sower and it lands on different types of soil. Um, we read that it, it you know, it, it lands on the, the rocky path, it ra- lands on the rocky ground, it lands um, among the thorns, and then others falls on good soil and produces fruit. There's these soils, these grounds, these places that receive the word are representative of different types of hearers. And the same is true today, isn't it? That, you know, uh, someone can preach the gospel and uh, you know a pastor can preach the gospel and there can be all sorts of different types of people there some people believe it sincerely some people totally reject it some people seem to initially receive it but push it away later on um, and this can be the same way with you as you share the gospel with your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers. Sometimes it seems as if uh, people will, will don't want anything to do, and it just feels like it's landed on the path and it does nothing. And then other times you'll share the same gospel message with other people, and their hearts have been prepared by the Lord, and they receive the seed, this seed, and and they understand it and they believe. And so really that's what this whole parable is teaching us about the different types of hearers. This is how the kingdom works. The same sower can throw the same seed, but the difference is is upon the hearts of men and such. And here J.C. Ryle points out that this, this teaches us there is only one evidence of hearing the word rightly. It's a good question. Do we hear the word rightly uh, whenever you come to preaching, whenever you're reading the Bible at home, whenever you're at home, however you're doing it, am I hearing the word rightly? And how? Can, what is the evidence of hearing the word rightly in this passage? Well, Ryle says this, that evidence, the, the one evidence of hearing the word rightly, that evidence is to bear fruit. We see that here in the text that those who receive the, the seed of the gospel, they bear fruit. That is, uh, they yield in some case a hundredfold, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. That's me talking here, just reminding you. Uh, Ryle writes this: the fruit here spoken of is the fruit of the spirit, repentance towards God, faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of life and character, prayerfulness, humility, charity, spiritual mindedness. These are the only satisfactory proofs that the seed of God's word is doing its proper work in our souls. Without such proofs, our religion is vain, however high our profession. It is no better than sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Christ has said, I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John fifteen sixteen. There is no part of the whole parable more important than this. We must never be content with a barren orthodoxy and a cold maintenance of correct theological views. We must not be satisfied with clear knowledge, warm feelings, and a decent profession. 
We must see to it that the gospel we profess to love produces positive fruit in our hearts and lives. This is real Christianity. Those words of James should often ring in our ears. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding your own selves. James 1, 22. That's a good evaluative thing as we think about here. Um, have we understood the gospel? Have we understood this, the message about Christ and what he is teaching us and telling us about who he is? And also, are we bearing fruit? And as uh, Ryle points out, these the kinds of fruit are the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we think about those in the epistles, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the, th- the fruit that the Spirit will produce in the lives of believers. Not that we are saved by our fruit. Of course, we're not saved because we bear those fruits, but rather it is because we have been saved that we will therefore bear those fruits because the Spirit of God now lives in us and inhabits us and has given us a new nature. We are born again. And so now we bear fruit in all sorts of ways. We're not perfect at all, um, but we do begin this walk in the Christian life as we walk the road to heaven now. We will bear fruit, and we must do that. And it's a good reminder to all of us, I think, that... um, we don't want to simply rest upon the fact that we know all the answers. That can be really easy, can't it, to sometimes just think, well, I know all the right theological answers. Or I know the Bible's answers. I know the plan of salvation. I know all this stuff. But we need to be very careful that that's not all that we're resting in. Not even warm feelings. Are we, are we satisfied with simply having the correct theological answers? Or are we satisfied with having positive, warm emotional feelings when we think about Jesus or when we come to church or even just saying, well, yeah, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm having a decent profession. As J.C. Rowell says, no, we want to have fruit that is really positive. He says produces positive fruit in our hearts and lives. We want to be doers of the word as James uh, calls us to, as Jesus really is calling us to through James. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this is a good reminder of us all that if we have heard the gospel, if we have understood it, it will bear fruit in our lives. It will produce change and have consequences and ramifications for how we live with our family, at our job, um, even by ourselves, and as we pray to God and as we live in our church and as we live with uh, fellow believers. So, Hearing the word rightly calls us to bearing fruit. Fourthly, the fourth thing that we can learn about from uh, these passages is found from Matthew chapter 14 now. So we've, we've looked at 11, 12, 13, and now 14. And this is from that wonderful story uh, where Jesus is walking on the water. Remember, Jesus just fed the 5,000, and he goes up to a mountain to pray. And he goes in there alone. He sends his disciples off, and he sends them in a boat uh, onto the lake there and says, you guys go, and he goes up and prays. And then, of course, there's this storm that rages across, and uh, we read there, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately 
Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Well, eventually Peter says, Lord, if it's you, let me come into the boat. And Jesus says, come. Peter looks around him and sees the wind. He gets to be afraid and he starts to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. What a wonderful illustration it is of, <laughs> I mean, Peter is so encouraging to us all, isn't he, as Christians? Um, we grow in grace, we grow in faith, and it, how wonderful it is. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you of no faith, to Peter. He says, oh, you of little faith. And so it shows us that even the best of believers, even those closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, even those who seem to uh, have done great things for the Lord, as Peter did later on in his life, they were men like you and me. They were, uh, they were humans with a sinful heart um, who had to, to look to Christ and who still struggled with doubts and fears and sin and all of those things. So J.C. Ryle here has this wonderful section where he talks about how merciful our Lord Jesus Christ is to weak believers. We see that here in this section. He says this, We see him stretching forth his hand immediately to save Peter. As soon as Peter cried to him, he does not leave him to reap the fruit of his own unbelief and sink in the deep waters. He only seems to consider his trouble and to think of nothing so much as delivering him from it. The only word he utters is the gentle reproof. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Behold, in this concluding part of the miracle, the exceeding gentleness of Christ. He can bear with much and forgive much when he sees true grace in a man's heart. As a mother deals gently with her infant and does not cast it away because of its little waywardness and forwardness, so does the Lord Jesus deal gently with his people. He loved and pitied them before conversion, and after conversion he loves and pities them still more. He knows their feebleness and bears long with them. He would have us know that doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. When I said my foot is slipping, your loving kindness, O Lord, held me up. Psalm 94, 18. I don't know about you, but um, I oftentimes feel like a weak believer, and I oftentimes feel as if, uh, uh, you know, Jesus is going to be done with me. Uh, that, you know, does he forgive me of my sins? And I'm I'm often trying to uh, buy back uh, the love of Christ. But here Jesus shows us his compassion. He really is concerned for us. That's crazy, isn't it? How many times did Peter see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle? How many times did he hear Jesus talk to him and instruct him and correct him and and yet, Jesus never tired of Peter. Jesus never gave up on Peter. Jesus never threw Peter away and said, You know what? I'm done with you. You've turned away from me for the last time. Jesus held Peter fast. He held him fast with a strong hand. 
but with a gentle grip. And he holds us the same way. He is merciful and compassionate to his people. And and I love that fact that it says that he's compassionate to us before conversion. Jesus has compassion upon all men, whether they're believers or not. But then on top of that, sometimes we think, well, he had compassion on me to get me into salvation, to save me, but now he's tired of me as his, uh, you know, as part of one of his disciples because I keep messing up. And here again, we see his compassion continues and is even greater still for us. While we were yet weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, this is, this shows again who Jesus Christ is to us. And this is the, the wonderful Jesus who offers himself to our friends, to our neighbors, our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving co-workers, uh, to everyone around us. He's the only hope that we have to offer people around us. He's the only hope that we have in the church. And so um, it's just a good reminder to us to, to relish in this wonderful wonderful attribute and characteristic of our perfect Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, the last thing I think I want to point out from these uh, chapters is found in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus here, of course, is teaching about the traditions of men versus the commandments of God and calls us to obey Scripture, God's commandments, uh, over against man's traditions. God's word is supreme. But Then also, he emphasizes about what is it that really leads to defilement and sin. Because it's almost as if the the, the Pharisees had this idea, basically, that sin was out there. And so, I kill sin by um, making sure my external actions are right, or ceremonially that I'm washing the right way, and my hands are being washed the right way. I'm doing all the right ceremonial external actions because sin is outside of me. But Jesus here highlights something different. He says this, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. This was offensive, and this is offensive to our culture today when we tell them the problem that they have is a problem in their own hearts. And Jesus here says this explicitly. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus here is highlighting the radical and uh, the real nature of, of our heart. See, the problem with all of us is not that we're good people who do a few bad things or that we were born good and then we do we imitate we get some pick up some bad habits here and there our problem is that we are sinners from birth that we are born with corrupt natures i've heard it said from a a book that i've read that um, just as we have a heart and just as we have a liver just as we have a hands so all of us are also born now after the fall with a corrupt hard sinful heart 
sinful nature. And it's from that that we sin all over. Our sin flows from this fountain, this source. We sin because we are already sinners. And that is a very hard truth uh, to, to, to accept, isn't it? But yet it can also be a very freeing truth in a, in a very ironic way. And I'm stealing this from Charles Spurgeon because he has a sermon where he uh, talks about um, this passage. The sermon is called, The Heart, A Den of Evil. And it's on, uh, I believe, this passage in Matthew chapter 15. And he highlights, he talks about the evil of man's heart, but he also has a section where he talks about how it's connected to other uh, important doctrines as well. And he says this, Yet once again, how this doctrine illustrates the doctrine of the atonement. Brothers and sisters, sin defiles us most horribly. Its acts defiles our will, our character, but its essence has ruined our nature. It appears from Christ's statement that we are defiled internally as well as outwardly, that sin is not only an eruption, as it were, upon the skin, but it is in the center of our nature. Behold, then, the need of the precious blood and admire its wonderful potency. The blood of God's own dear Son which streamed on Calvary's accursed tree, cleanses us in our inner man. O matchless blood, O marvelous purification! Come here, sinner. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as wool. And though your heart itself is even more scarlet than your actions, he can cleanse your heart as well as your life. Christ can cleanse the fountain and the stream too. He can remove the external leprosy and heal the internal leprosy also. Both root and branch he bears away. O souls, admire and wonder. Bow down with tears streaming from your eyes and then look up with gladness to the Son of God made flesh, crucified for sinners. For whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Come, you black-hearted. Come, you defiled and ruined sons of Adam. Come, you who are perishing at the gates of hell shut out from hope. Come, you who, like the men of Zebulun and Naphtali, sit in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death. Come and trust Christ, and he will send his spirit upon you and give you new hearts and right spirits. From all your iniquities will he cleanse you. He will be the new creator, for he sits on the throne this day, and he says, Behold, I make all things new. Well, that's uh, that's uh, pretty good stuff right there from Spurgeon. Um, uh, the only solution for such a radical problem that we have, that all men have, that we share in common with every person on the globe, except for the one man, Jesus Christ, who has risen to heaven, that one problem, this corruption of heart from which all sin in the world has ever come from, uh, in our nature now, after the fall from Adam, it, it is taken away through the atonement of Christ. His atonement not only makes us legally right with God and takes away the punishment and gives us forgiveness and justification and acceptance with God, but that same atonement then secures to us the benefit of being adopted and then given a new birth and a sanctification, a new heart, a heart that now beats with love to God that is the truth of the atonement. 
That's what we, we preach. That's why we focus so much upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So those are just five things, I think, that are very helpful to think about as we consider Matthew chapter 11 uh, through 15. I hope they're helpful to you. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you. I hope if you have questions or comments or ideas for this podcast that you'll contact me um, and we can talk about that. Um, I hope you're enjoying reading through the New Testament and that it's uh, being encouraging to you. And, uh, and, and yeah, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for reading. And I look forward to being with you next week. Take care. God bless.